In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. They include Hall of Fame athletes, Academy Award winners, Golden Globe winners, Super Bowl champions, Emmy winners, award-winning authors, award-winning film score composers, directors, trailblazers, pioneers, and venters, the variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. The night Naz was arrested, he lost a lot. He lost his freedom to return home to his family, to his school, to his night job that helps pay for that school. But what he didn't lose, and what none of us can lose, were his constitutional rights to an attorney, to a fair and impartial trial by you, his peers, and to the presumption of his innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. We hear that term a lot. What does it really mean? What's its definition? It doesn't have one. It's what we think. And as much as what we think, what we feel. And what we feel, and what you feel, will determine what happens to the rest of this young man's life. Monday Morning Critic Podcast. This is Derek Thomas. This is episode 222. Today's guest is composer Jeff Russo. Jeff's filmography includes the um, court scene and music that you heard on the intro from the HBO episodic series The Night Of, which I believe is now a few years old. It also includes um, For All Mankind, Picard, Clarice, Fargo, uh, The Umbrella Academy, other Star Trek scores, um, Altered uh, Carbon, uh, Santa Clarita Diet. There's a lot there to like. Jeff really is a very prominent and very talented composer. He is married to Nina Gordon, uh, the lead singer from Baruch Assault. You might know them from the song Seether. Um, very talented uh, singer as well. Um, I do want to get into a couple things here. Um, if you're looking to contact me on Twitter, it is MDM Critic. Um, on Instagram, it's Monday Morning Critic. On Facebook, it's Monday Morning Critic Podcast. The website is mmcpodcast.com. My email is mondaymorningcritic at gmail.com. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Jeff's filmography. So if, if you listen to um, the intro, you heard his music really fueling that court scene in the night of. 
And if you follow me on Instagram or just, you know, happen to see my posts on Instagram, I've put another scene that is fueled that, that Jeff's music fuels the scene. Je- Jeff Russo is just a very talented, very gifted composer. And the fact that I'm lucky enough to say that I've had back to back composers, uh, episode 221 was Stefan Gregory, an Australian composer who did the music for the Netflix movie, the dig. Now I have a episode 222, Jeff Russo, a composer who I told you what he's done and his music in the night of is some of my favorite ever. And I mean ever. And, you know, there, there's not a time that goes by during my day where I'm not listening to some sort of some sort of movie score music, um, whether I'm running, whether I'm doing work, whether I'm editing a podcast, always listening to movie scores. They've been a big part of my life, always have been, always will be. So to have the influx of composers, not only just the last two weeks, but I feel like the last few months, I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, I'm also very proud of the fact that I've really created a podcast that encompasses the movie making process, right? It's not just, you know, eight actors from one show on Netflix. It is cinematographers, writers, and I know I've said this before, but it stands to be true. People can claim a lot of things, but either you do or you don't. And I believe that this podcast does, and and I'm really proud of that. So, yes, I am very excited to introduce you to Jeff Russo in a moment. Uh, His music, again, in the night of, if you haven't seen it, um, you're welcome. Uh, The night of HBO Max, I believe, you will not regret it. John Turturro is unbelievable. And not only that, I feel like I'm saying Riz Ahmed's name a lot lately. I said it now for the night of. Um, he is stunning and phenomenal in The Sound of Metal. I, I feel like his name is coming up a lot. And uh, he, you're starting to see an actor get to that next level, right? Not that he was a level lower or anything like that, but he is on the upper echelon of actors at this point. Um, his his performances speak for themselves. He's just such a wonderfully gifted actor. And again, not to sound redundant, repetitive, um, in the night of Jeff Russo's music just made it for me. I remember watching it the first time. Uh, again, it's like a couple years old now. I just remember just sobbing. I mean, it, it's just, it's a moving story. And when you have a composer that knows what he's doing or what she's doing, it really takes it to the next level. And the writing is superior. Um, so uh, lots to talk about with Jeff. A um, couple other things that are, are not related to the interview here. Uh, I am very excited to talk about a documentary called Grant. I think I mentioned that. On the last pod- podcast, this is about Ulysses S. Grant. I have a couple special guests coming from that. Um, I've been dying to g- get a couple of really cool guests, and I, and, I, and I confirmed it today. So I'm really excited for that. A ton of guests coming up. Um, I'm almost working overtime trying to schedule here. I'm, I'm doing three or four interviews a week, which is a ton. But um, I've had a lot of great people confirming. So that's really, really exciting. Um, so... Um, the Golden Globes happened two days ago, and it's, I want to say, it was one of the lowest rated Golden Globes maybe in history or of recent memory, and I'll tell you why I think that is. I have to tell you, I watch movies and television to get away, right? Um, you know, I have a job, not just podcasting. Um, we have a six-month-old, seven-month-old now, so we we work very hard. You know, I, I also exercise during that time, so you know, I'm working or doing something nonstop, always active, always trying to, you know, my mind is always on something. So when I get to the point where I watch in the night where I settle 
and I really just run the gamut of things. I'm not just watching Netflix. I watch everything. And I'm watching the Golden Globes. I just turned it off. Like, I used to love these shows. I love the Academy. I love cheering for actors that have been on my show and have won. Nick Vallelonga of Green Book fame, um, out of nowhere, um, wins uh, a screenplay. He's in the movie. It wins Best Movie of the Year. So, And there's been a ton of other guests that have been nominated for Academy Awards, Golden Globes, so forth. So I guess my point is this. I watch movies and TV to get away from the realities of life. Not that I dread those realities, but just to put my mind in another place that isn't so stressful. It's the same reason why I exercise. It just takes my mind somewhere else. And I got to tell you, um, and I'm not, I don't ever get into politics. It's not something I'm interested in. You'll never win talking politics one way or the other. But I got to tell you, and this is why it's poorly, and this is why the ratings stink. and, and, And there's just no question behind it. Um, people do not want to be preached to about their politics one way or the other. And that's the problem here. I'm not saying actors can't have political views. Everyone should have a political view. Where you decide to share it is is a completely different thing. But I guess my point without getting too deep into this is that I don't want my getaway at night, you know, that, that two or three precious hours that I have when, when the baby's sleeping, you know, sometimes, um, I'm with my wife, sometimes I'm alone doing research, but that time, I don't want to be preached to. I, I'll give you an example. Um, there's an actor that I love, and I won't mention his name. I loved him. He's a comedic actor. He was, I would watch him on a loop, and he made me laugh so hard, I thought I was going to, my stomach was going to burst open. That's how much I loved him. But his incessant talk of politics and politics and politics, it's like, no thanks. I'm just done. I'm done. This is my getaway, and you guys are turning this into a, political forum. And I'm not saying their points are not valid. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're points that shouldn't be heard. I'm not saying that. It's just you, you've taken a very sweet thing. And there's always been politics throughout the years of the Academy Awards, more so recently. But I just, you know, and I'll tell you, that's why it's low. People just don't want to hear it. When people watch movies, they want to get away. When people watch the award shows, they want to get away and cheer for somebody, which is why I used to love the Golden Globes, because Ricky Gervais was the best show, was the best host of that show or any, you know, award show in history. By far, end of story, period. Ricky Gervais did this 10, 15 minute opening. He torched the entire room, made me laugh, creative, awesome. Those days are long gone. The Golden Globes and the award shows are something completely different. It's a very, the Golden Globes has become, it used to be Ricky Gervais in this wonderful stand-up and it has turned into a very unpleasant experience. And I'm all done with the award shows for a while. Um, not to mention, there were some major snubs. And it's like, are you kidding me? It's just, what a mess. It's an absolute mess. And who in their right mind would tune in and stay tuned into that mess when there's so much good stuff to watch out there, so many good streaming services that you could be focused in on, and and, and this junk doesn't deserve anybody's time. And, and it's sad. I never thought I would have been saying this about the Golden Globes, ever. Um, I'm just heartbroken at these award shows. I used to I used to circle them on a calendar and count the days. Now now they're an afterthought, which which stinks. And I'm and I'm sorry that I have to um, say that. Uh, so also changing subjects here. I'm done with that. Uh, Karate Kid Four has started filming. I really hope that's as good as I think it's going to be. Uh, the end of the third, the last episode, season finale, season th- season finale, season three was simply phenomenal. Absolutely loved it. Um, 
I've been watching WandaVision. I've talked about that in the last three episodes. Um, I got to tell you, it's really, really well done. It certainly is well done. I love it. Um, there's a lot of great actors involved here. But I have to say, so like the last episode, I'm going to dance around this so I don't give away spoilers, um, just in case people haven't watched it. It's almost like you have to do research to understand the full meaning of what happened during an episode. Yes, there's there's levels of understanding. Okay, I get this person's good, this person's bad, and boom. But this this comic book universe, this, you know, when you research this, um, I'll give you an example. So the Scarlet Witch, right? Uh, she's she belongs to Disney now because they bought out Fox. But before they bought out Fox, she was part of the X Men, and uh, Disney couldn't mention the X Men, so they had to create another storyline for her. It, I mean, the the more you read, the more of a migraine I was getting. It was like this is so ridiculous. Like when I watch a show, I'm not saying it has to be simple, but it should not require, um, you know. I was literally reading for an hour just to get an understood the deepest understanding of this show. And I came away having to take three Advils. It was ridiculous. And I still love the show and the show is great. I'm not too thrilled by what the director just came out and said, where he said, not everyone's going to be happy with the ending. So we have that to look forward to, but I don't like it when you have to investigate the complete understanding of a show. It takes the fun out of it. Um, anyways, uh, th- that being said, um, there's a ton of great stuff out there. Uh, speaking of Disney Plus, um, their price has gone up as I predicted it would have. I didn't have any inside information, obviously, but I'm telling you, within five years, it is now up to I think eight or nine dollars. Within five years, that sucker is going to be in the twenties. Mark my words. There's just they're going to come out with so many great shows, and it, and it's going to be worth it. By the way, uh, I'm not saying it's not worth it, but it's going to skyrocket. And um, there there's other uh, platforms coming out, streaming services coming out. Um, Paramount has one coming out, and Peacock is out. And I'm not sure some of these are really worth your time. If it was up to me, if my opinion means anything, um, I would surround myself with Disney Plus. I would, and I only have Hulu because I have a package through Verizon. But if, if it was up to me, I would take that package that includes Hulu, um, Disney Plus. I would get no matter what. Obviously, I would take Netflix, which is also now, what, 15 16 a month. Uh, I would certainly, Amazon Prime is a, slash Amazon Video is a wonderful deal. Um, and, you know, if you order a lot of stuff online, you get that free, you know, that, that streaming service, which is totally worth it. So that's kind of what I would surround myself with. Outside of that, H, oh, I'm sorry, HBO Max is worth it as well. It gets pricey when these add up, but that's it. That's where I would draw the line. I'd go HBO Max, I would go Netflix, I'd go Prime, I would go uh, Prime Video, I would go uh, Disney Plus. That's it, just the ones I mentioned. Keep it simple. There's everything you need pretty much in one streaming service, never mind five. But everything else, like Paramount, and it's just junk. I got, um, because I love The Walking Dead, um, AMC offers an AMC Plus or AMC Premiere. And it's $5 a month. And I, I get it. It's only $5. But I'm going to tell you, um, you know what the advantages are? I mean, the only shows I watch are Walking Dead related on AMC. There's nothing else I need to watch there. The only perks of that is there's no commercials. And there are no, um, you get to watch the episode two days earlier. I got to say, I never thought it would be this cheap to sound like, I'm going to sound very cheap right now. It's not worth 5 bucks a month. It's not. Like, take that money and spend it elsewhere. Um I, I got to tell you, it's um, we love, you know, we'll, we'll take the commercials. We love 
on Sunday nights. Walking Dead comes on at 9 o'clock. We love watching our show. We love seeing previews for The Talking Dead hosted by Chris Hardwick when we look where they look back on the episode and dissect it. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. No show does it better. Uh, except when, of course, uh, Yvette Nicole Brown is there uh, with her stupid notebook letting you know she's the best fan on the planet. I, I can't stomach her. I just She's very difficult for me to watch. She's um, you know when they show, they say a show is unwatchable. It's unwatchable when she's on. Um, I feel like she forces her way, and I absolutely I, I can't when she's on there. I have to I have to say no, thank you. So yeah, not a big and people have listened to the podcast before. No, I'm not. No, I'm not a big Yvette Nicole Brown fan at all. Um, you know, and, and I feel like she has to tell you that she's the biggest fan of every show, and you're just a a distant second. It's very difficult to stomach, but uh, thanks again for listening to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. This is episode 222. Please welcome composer Jeff Russo. My next guest is a two-time Grammy nominee, an award-winning composer. His filmography includes Fargo, The Night Of, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, The Umbrella Academy, and For All Mankind, just to name a few. Please welcome composer Jeff Russo. Jeff, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, how are you? Good. Jeff, so, you know, I I feel like I've interviewed many composers. I've interviewed many people in the, you know, the world of producing music for movies. I feel like your path is a little bit different in the sense that um, it kind of started, and if I'm incorrect here, please correct me at any time. Um, it starts in a band. It starts more vocally, I feel like. Um, is that a correct, you know, broad scope look of your of your career and life early on? Well, you know, my childhood dream was to be in a rock band, right? That was my, that was what I always wanted when I was a kid growing up. Um, I started a band when I was in high school and then I continued playing in bands and then um, eventually came out to Los Angeles, you know, pursuing the dream. And um, yeah, I would say, you know, me being the lead guitar player in my band, Tonic, for the last 20 some odd years has been, you know, the basis on which I built all of my sort of creativity. You know, that was the thing that I started um, first and foremost. Um, and then my transition into, a, into being a film and television composer, you know, it was almost accidental. I, I won't say accidental because I did make a decision to do it, um, but I never really had designs to do it from the very beginning. Um, it was something that presented itself to me that seemed very interesting. And once I started doing it and figuring it out, um, it became more and more of a love of mine. I've, I've always loved um, film music and I've always loved that kind of style of writing. Um, I just never imagined myself doing it, mm. um, but it seemed very, it seemed very um, natural to me to write music for a narrative, which is um, what I tend to do or tended to do in my band. Um, you know, the narrative was just the lyrics that um, my the, the singer in the band, my partner Emerson, had, had written, and we sort of would create these these pieces of music around it. So it, it seemed uh, seemed somewhat natural to, to do that. No, that's that's interesting to hear. And I have to say, you know, when I was growing up, and obviously still today, when all my friends were listening to like ACDC and Kiss, I'm the dork who's listening to Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams, and you know, I mean, it's just it's just something I've. It, 
it's always touched a place in my heart. I can't put a finger on it. Do you feel like, um, and, and I understand, I, I feel like musically from looking at your life, you're just, you're, you're a gifted musician and I believe one helps with the other. Do you find that to be the case? Did anything vocally, um, you know, with, with your band help with composing scores um, outside of an ear for music? Is I mean, I'm sure there's other things too, but is there any other major impactful things that you, you took over? And I know you still play music clearly. Is there anything that you took over from the world of you know bands and vocal music into the world of composing well yeah i would say so i would say um you know i i i think what i would bring to it is a different perspective right um you know because i i cut my teeth on writing songs not on orchestrated music but minimally orchestrated music you know when, when you're when playing in a rock band, you know, we have, um, you know, six instruments or whatever, bass, drums, guitars, maybe a keyboard and voices. Um, you know, so coming at this type of writing from that, you know, sort of gave me a a different perspective of it. So I tend to write my orchestral arrangements differently than, someone who was trained to do that might, might do, you know, it's Mm. sort of a different perspective on it. And I think, I think that's a, um, I think that has lent itself greatly to how I go about doing things on top of the fact that, um, you know, as a performer, I think I maybe have, you know, a little bit of an internalized, understanding of drama you know when when you get up in front of an audience and you perform and you understand how to um affect the audience in one way or another it's all a performance i feel like incorporating that into writing music for picture writing music for narrative is important because you you already have an understanding on how to manipulate the emotion yeah, I never thought of it that way, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, being in a band, you're right, you're kind of out there, you're up front, you're in front of people. I mean, granted, an orchestra, you have to be, you know, you have to be in the rhythm of, of everyone else, or otherwise it sounds terrible. But in a band, you're a little more on an island, I feel like. And I and I do feel like that comes out in your music, the fact that you had a different background, but in the, in the best way possible, because I feel like many composers do have the uh, orchestral background, and I feel like sometimes it, it leads to a lot of similar sounding music and i'm not trying to group people in one here but sometimes it does i feel like is that am i being too um naive with that perspective jeff well you you may be not naive but perhaps a little too general general about it but i do agree with you to a certain degree you know there there is an amount of music that does tend to sound in the same ilk um and you know it's funny um john powell said i I read in an interview that john powell did he was like the best advice he feels he could ever give to um, another composer an up-and-coming composer was don't listen to film music (laughs) um and and you know i think from his perspective was you know the more you listen to it the more you sound like it and you know I enjoy listening to film music, but I try to listen to it with, with the, you know, with a fan's ear as opposed to with a, with a student's ear, I Mm. should say. Um, although, you know, 
I, I do listen to sort of figure out how people do certain things as well, because a lot of times I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not a musically educated um, composer. I didn't go to um, music school. I didn't go to conservatory. I, I'm self-taught. I self, you know, all, all the instruments that I play, I, I taught myself how to play and um, taught myself how to write this type of music. You know, um, I think that just having an understanding of melody and harmony um, it is the thing that helped me get to what I do, what I do now. Right. Um, you know, I, I still sit here um, wondering when people are going to figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you, know, that I, I, you know, at some point somebody's going to come knocking on the door and be like, okay, you're done. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You know, that's I, not, that's not going to happen. I, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just, I sort of put my hand down um, it's and it's dark, and I'm just feeling around for for a good melody, or feeling around for a good chord progression, or feeling around for a good rhythm, and and uh, sometimes it hits me, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I still am not nearly as adept as so many other composers at doing this gig, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly, constantly feeling a little bit behind the eight ball, but that's sort of another conversation. Yeah. But you know what? I feel like, you, you, yeah, there, it's, it reminds me of actors, right? There are many of our greatest actors never went to drama school. Right. And I feel like, you know, your ear and your, your sense for music and sense for what goes into a particular um, score or movie or show. I feel like that's not something you can go to school for either. You have it or you don't. I mean, you can, you can get better at it, I suppose, but you have it. I mean, and it's just, I don't believe it's something, Jeff, and for those listening, in my opinion, that you could ever go to school and, and, and learn. Well, you know, I appreciate that. And to a certain degree, I do, I do agree with you. I think that, you know, people do, there are people who have an innate sense of how to do certain, um, certain things, right? Mm. How to do... Um, in this particular case, we're talking about how to write music and have it be meaningful to a narrative. You know, there are many really, really, really wonderful composers that maybe they wouldn't be able to do that, you know. And then there are also people who can do that. And maybe they aren't, wouldn't be as good at writing concert music. I, I, I you know, I don't know. I, I feel like, and there are very few who can do it all, like, our, our friend John Williams, who can yeah. <laughs> you know write anything, and, and it's always great. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. But yeah, and you- having having an having that understanding of drama, you know, and how to tell a story. I think that's for me the most important thing that I came to the table with, sort of having a little bit of an understanding of. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. You know, and for those listening, um, Jeff's wife is Nina Gordon, um, founder of one of the founders of Ruka Salt. Do you ever find that? Um, and I've asked actors this that have you know um, spouses that are in the acting industry. Um, for you, um, is she ever a sounding board? Is she ever somebody that says to you, you know, um, I, I think this sounds like? Does she give advice? Does is she, is she a springboard for you? Is does does that ever occur? All the time. That's awesome. All the time, she's a springboard, and I, I will play it for her knowing that she's going to tell me that I need to go back to the drawing board. Uh, that's, that's, you know, and that has happened many, many times. And she has, you know, given me some very, very sage advice on, on um, 
you know, how things sound, or maybe this is the wrong instrument, or maybe this is the wrong thing, or, you know, and, and occasionally she'll be like, oh, hey, that sucks. <laughs> and then, and when she says that, so there have been times when I was like, oh, I know I've gotten it right. Because I knew that if she hated it, that that's the thing that I need to do. Because I know where she's at when she doesn't like something. It's it's sort of it's. But yes, I would say she's she's ultimately um, my my the last sounding board I have. Yeah, and that is so vital because if if you were married to somebody, and said yes, yes, honey, that sounds great. That would be professionally terrible for you as emotionally yeah it feels great but you know what it, it makes you a better composer at the end of the day and i can absolutely appreciate that just a quick random question here uh jeff before we get into your wonderful filmography so i was listening to an interview back in march um howard stern was interviewing adam levine and he asked him who what he thought the two best written songs ever were and i gotta say his answer kind of caught me off guard a little bit and i just wanted to get your opinion as a very talented musician composer what you thought of this he responded with God Only Knows by the Beach Boys and In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Shocking answers. Do you get it? Thoughts on that? Uh, okay. I, I I may not wholeheartedly agree because, um, you know, songs and music are 100% subjective. Yep. Um, I, I, I love those two songs. And when I hear that that's his answer, yeah, I completely understand. God Only Knows from a from a vocal harmonic standpoint is you know, certainly one of the top five ever ever made wow and in your eyes i mean that album holds a very special meaning for me so is a really important album to me in my childhood so when when i hear somebody talk about that i go oh yeah like so that does that is not at all shocking at all to me yeah, that, that's that's well said, and yeah, and he was so confident, and I was just so as and I was listening to the songs after he said it, and I, and I could from a non musical you know person, I, I can really appreciate what he was saying. Um, just to touch on your filmography here, I'm um, getting into it. Um, you know, I had a couple guests on before who took their composers who took over for people that um, started a, a TV show or a movie. So let me give you an example. Alex uh, Warmer took over for Thomas Newman, who did the newsroom um, opening. Um, I had Martin Phipps on the score who took over for Hans Zimmer who did the crown um you are in far you have Fargo and Star Trek obviously there's people before that how are you able to put your amazing unique touch on these um these either shows or movies and you know is there pressure do you feel pressure or is it you know what because I feel like you have just you just jump into something and you give it everything you have. You're not somebody that, you know, is wondering, you know, is this good? You just kind of go for it and, and not worry about where the chips land. If I'm, I hope I'm not speaking for you too much there, but is there pressure in that scenario where you're following up a couple legendary composers, you know, Fargo's a movie. It's different, I guess, but um, is it, is it more challenging that way than just creating it from scratch? Well, uh, I would say there's, Certainly, is it more challenging? I, I don't know. I think everything I do, everything I, I, I start is a challenge on some level. Um, I think that both of those particular franchises, and, and again, you know, Fargo wasn't a franchise. It was a movie. Right. Um, so with, with Fargo, it was slightly different. You know, um, Carter had, had made this incredible, incredibly iconic score for the movie, um, and 
I, what I needed to do was I needed to sort of feel like we were in that world. Certainly in the first season, I knew that we needed to feel like we were in that world that was created by those filmmakers and yet still be, have our own signature and our own sound and our own um, identity. We needed to create our own identity. So with that, I, I sort of knew what the, um, what the basic idea for the sound of the score would be in that first season. And I just needed to come up with some new melodies, new harmonizations, and then, you know, figure out how I was going to treat the narrative, the story itself, because Noah Hawley definitely did this. He did the same thing with the way he tells the story. Um, and that was, that was pretty, um, that was pretty frightening. Um, you know, certainly it was me feeling like I was standing in the shadow of giants, right. Mm, with, with mm. Carter, who's, who's such a fantastic composer. Um, but I would say Star Trek that felt even more frightening because, you know, with Star Trek, um, I was tasked with not only writing the scores for the, these shows, but for, for writing the themes and, you know, the, the, the composers that have come before me in the Star Trek fan franchise have been, um, you know, some of the greatest composers uh, that have ever worked in film and television. You know, mm. um, Jerry Goldsmith and Alexander Courage and Jay Chataway. And was, these, these people have been, you know, writing music for a very, very long time. And I was I, I, not competing with them but needing to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and I still feel like I have a long way to go um, but that you know trying to find our own identity in a franchise that has a signature already was very complicated mm. um, because there's a lot of people you know, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about Star Trek and especially Star Trek music. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I needed to do at the very beginning was say, okay, this is what I, I think we should do. And I'm just going to do it. And it, and I just have to do it and not look sideways, <laughs> you know, right. not think about what anybody's going to think of it compared to something else. And in the midst of that, be able to quote my predecessors. You know, I, I get to quote Jerry Goldsmith's um, motifs in Picard, and I, I get to quote Sandy um, Sandy Courage's motifs in in Discovery and in Picard. Um, and moving forward in any of the other franchises that I'm going to be working on, um, I feel like that whole idea will continue. Um, and. That to me is a gift, you know, being able to quote Jerry Goldsmith and have it be meaningful narratively and not just like, oh, you're copying Jerry Goldsmith, because that, certainly that's not what it is. Right. What it is, is there's a narrative reason to do that. Um, and that, that is, it, you know, it's the gift that get, keeps on giving to me. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But that, that was complicated and, and continues to be complicated as I you know, just finished season three and I'm, I'm going to be starting season four and season two of, of, such as Picard, um, in figuring out how to continue that legacy, um, is a constant struggle. You know, it's a constant, like, 
trying to figure out how to do it, make it fresh and feel like it belongs and yet have it feel like it's been there forever. Yeah. It's a, it, to me, and that's what, and that's, yeah, when I was asking that question, I was like stumbling with my words because I, I didn't want to make it sound like you were taking their music. I feel like your music is completely original, but you're you're kind of in the midst of giants trying to create your own thing, and I can't even imagine that pressure. But you know, one of the things I'm trying to always do, Jeff, is trying to learn when I talk to composers because I love hearing what composers have to say. Uh, two weeks ago, I was interviewing uh, David Newman. He's in this wonderful family: Thomas Newman and Randy Newman, um, and, and he taught me about a term I've never heard before. It's called spotting for those listening. I mean, you obviously know what it is. How difficult is it yep. to spot? You know, is it, is it, you know, cause you have to find such, I feel like, I don't think I've ever seen a better job of spotting than what you did in the night of, but we're going to get to that in a second. Um, I just, do you feel like it's very difficult to do as a composer? Is it something that takes time? Well, I, I think that spotting, I think spotting is one of the most important things that a composer can do. Um, because if you move something one second earlier, one second later, five seconds later, 10 seconds earlier, come out earlier, come out later, it can change the dynamic of a scene and change the dynamic of an entire uh, project, actually. Um, and, you know, that to me, spotting is always a work in progress. Every, until the very end, it is a work in progress. And I pride myself on being very, very, very specific about spotting. Um, we, we sit and we spot with filmmakers, director, producer, and then when I'm writing, and I'm positive that this goes for every other composer worth his salt or her salt, um, that you will sit, I will sit and pain over exactly how you hear that first note of music or whether or not you even notice a first note of music. Um, and is it just all of a sudden, oh my God, there's music and I didn't even hear it start. Or do you hear it start and is, is it right at this moment when the character's looking this way or when he's doing this or when she's feeling that? And, you know, that's, that's a really, really important part of what we do. And, you know, I can write music all day long, and if it's not put in the right place, um, it, it may not work at all. Yeah, and, many and I've seen pieces of music that I've written for one place that I thought would work get put in another place, and it works even better. Uh, one of the things that I, the last thing I wanted to ask you, and I feel like it's one of your most underrated works, and that is The Night Of. Um, I feel like your music in the court scene and the end credits is unbelievably underrated. I feel like your music drives that phenomenal performance by John Turturro, Riz Ahmed. Um, and I feel like listening to many of your interviews, Jeff, that you don't get enough credit for that because I really believe it's a masterful job of composing. Just talk a little bit about The Night Of, and I thank you so much for all your time. Well, you know, The Night Of, first of all, Steve Dalian, who wrote and directed that project is an absolute genius. Um, his, his way he tells the story, the way he shoots it, the way he presents it, it's all so perfect. It's beyond anything. And he sent me all eight episodes all at once. He did not want me to like, I, I had a meeting with him. We talked about music, but he wouldn't show me anything. He said, 
I don't want you to even tell me if you want to do this until you've seen the entire thing. So I'm going to send you all eight, all eight um, episodes. And he did. He sent me all eight episodes. It had been temped w- largely with music of mine. Um, which was interesting to me because then I start seeing music I've written completely out of context, which was kind of jarring. So I actually asked him to send me all eight episodes with no music. Um, so I did that. And when I, when I watched the whole thing, I could hear the score in my head from mm. beginning to end. And the, the particular scene you're talking about, um, Strangely enough, I, I think I scored that more times than any other scene in my entire career um, because I wanted and need that to be absolutely perfect. And I, I kept fixing it. I kept going back to it and kept trying to perfect it. And where I ended up was actually kind of close to where I began, which is usually what happens with me, mm. where I sort of write something and it's not quite right. So then I go and change and do a whole hundred host of hundreds and hundreds of other things. And then I come back and it's as close to the beginning as, as I thought I would ever be. Um, but that was a really, that was a really special, really special project, really special, um, piece of filmmaking. And I, it's, it's some of my proudest work. Yeah. You're a really special composer. His name is Jeff Russo. Jeff, thank you so much for giving me some time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks very much, man. I really appreciate it.